Welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. With me today is Kenny Morrison, founder of VCC Brands. Thank you very much for joining me today, Kenny. Good to be with you, David. All right, before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can email me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. I know it's a long, long email address, but you'll get there. You'll get there. All right. So I'd like to get started. I always like to ask people how they got into the industry. So I saw that you've been in the industry since 2006, you know, when you founded a pair of medical cannabis collectives. You know, what was it that made you make that initial jump? Um, well, we were growing cannabis in the basement and at a couple other locations. And my uh, partners in that weren't interested in being the, the brave soul to go into one of the first five dispensaries in all of LA County. And so um, I was willing to, to step in and, and check it out. And I actually happened to stumble upon one. Um, I wasn't even seeking one out at the time. And I, I saw it and I, I think I pulled over and, I went in um, and long story short, I ended up meeting, you know, the founder, the owner of the place. And we um, struck up a friendship and a, a partnership. And I actually ended up helping him uh, go from having one store to having briefly four stores. And ultimately we had three stores. One of them got shut down very, very quickly by the city of Santa Monica mm. Um but yeah, so I basically helped, uh, the, basically the first dispensary I ever went into, I ended up partnering with the owner to open some more storefronts in LA. That's incredible. How did it, uh, how did it work out that you guys just sort of, uh, vibed? You know, we really connected because he was a surfer and I'm a surfer. Um, he's passed away since, so I'm mm. speaking about him in the past tense, which is kind of a bummer. Mm -hmm. Um, but he was a a good deal older than me and we really connected with like, you know, I've said this a few times before, like if there was one word on my tombstone other than maybe father or husband, it would be surfer, you know, (laughs) and, uh, him and I both really derived a good sense of our, uh, you know, identity and definitely like our, our, our thrill for adventure, you know, like our, our penchant for, for thrill mm-hmm. and risk-taking from surfing. So we connected on, you know, just the, the, the adventurous spirit of two, two surfers. What was it that, uh, you know, your previous partners were apprehensive about coming out of the basement about? Oh, I mean, I just think, you know, um, one of my good childhood buddies was just a lifetime third generation cannabis farmer. And, you know, ever since elementary school, his parents had told him, Hey, we are not like other families. Mm-hmm. You can't go to school and tell people what, what your parents do. We're, we're different, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was just ingrained into him from multi-generationally ingrained into him not to be public about what he did. And he's since come out of the shadows and joined the, the, you know, regulated market like the rest of us. But it took him a little longer. And, you know, maybe I have a higher threshold for, uh, for risk than a lot of people. So I was, you know, 2006, I was willing to go out there and kind of poke around and see what was going on. As you started poking around, uh, 
what were some of the you know initial pitfalls that you kind of stumbled upon? Well, in 2006, you know, it had to be less than a year after I met um, the owner of this dispensary. Uh, the store got raided. It was called the pharmacy. It was at Santa Monica and Fairfax. That license is now a MedMen store. It's the mess. It's the West Hollywood flagship location for MedMen. But at the time, it was called the pharmacy with an F. And um, I got a phone call that the place got raided, and I I went down there immediately. And uh, I think the clip of me calling Michael and saying, as of five minutes ago, the pharmacy is being raided by the DEA. I think that little clip of audio made it into a documentary called Super High Me. That Doug, I forget his name, but that comedian made his little goofy documentary called super high me but you know i called the producers of that i called alex and it was the name of the producer and um they came down they shot some footage and uh so that was that was like the early days and i guess your question was you know some of the risk and what went down and that was that was one of the early interesting observations being present for that and seeing how it all played out when you're present for something like that how do you steal yourself so you don't get chased out of the out of the industry? You know, I think I'll use a surfing analogy, right? Because that's how surfing has kind of played out in my life. When you paddle out at a big spot, say you're in Hawaii or Northern California or somewhere, you really have the butterflies and you're really scared until you take a big wave on the head. Right. And I remember one time when I was 15 paddling out in Hawaii with my friends and we got worked, we got caught inside by a big set and scraped across the bottom and came up with a little bit of, you know, scrapes. And we were like, okay, cool. We get it now. We understand the risks. We survived it. We know how to navigate it. We know that it's surmountable. And uh, you kind of feel like you have a little more intimate experience of, of what's required and what the potential problems can be. And then after that, you kind of, you know, dust yourself off. Just like sometimes a UFC fighter doesn't wake up until they get punched a couple times. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously you have to be kind of, you know, cut out for it. But, uh, okay. but yeah, dealing with the DEA and kind of asking them some questions that day and just seeing how they operated and getting a sense of what their true motive was it gave me a better understanding of the powers and the forces at play. Mm, What was their true motivation? The DEA shows up with their own locksmiths. Mm. And that day they asked two questions. One, who's the manager? Two, where is the safe? Okay. That was it. Where, who's the manager? Where is the safe? They go straight for the safe. They had welding torches. They opened it up. They wanted to take out the money and the product and they wanted to leave. Mm. That was it. Yeah. And I remember going up to the door of one of the DEA vehicles and it was like, you know, it was, you know, some guys just a couple years older than me, maybe, maybe not any older than me, maybe a little younger. And they looked like guys that I would roll jujitsu with. You know, they look like guys, they look like normal, normal guys. And uh, I tapped on the window and he kept a straight face and rolled the window down like a crack, two inches. Zoop. And I said, hey, does it smell good in there? Because they had just filled the whole SUV with, <laughs> with pounds and pounds of pot. And he gave me a little grin and shook his head. Yes. Or <laughs> nodded his head. Yes. And then the next question I said, I said, 
do you really like believe in what you're doing? And he just went zip and rolled up the window and looked straight ahead. He wanted mm -hmm. no part in answering that question. It was a funny little exchange about, does it smell good in there? And he smiled. Yeah. So it was like, I kind of realized in that moment, I was like, they're thrill seekers just like I am. Yeah. And we're just on different sides of this tail, this, this goofy, you know, game of tug of war. And it's inevitable how this is going to end. Even back in 2006, to me, the inevitability of the trajectory of this thing was clear. Mm -hmm. Maybe I never thought it would still be federally illegal today, 15, 16 years later. Um, but the writing's always been on the wall. Mm -hmm. um, so starting with your time at the pharmacy, what happened in that two years before you founded uh, Venice Cookie Company? I tried my hand at retail. Okay. And um, I had some partners. We expanded from, you know, one store to four. Um, one of them got shut down really quick, ironically, by a kid I went to elementary school with who is now a narcotics officer for Santa Monica Police Department. He called me up and he was like, yo, did you try and open a, a dispensary? And, um, and so, yeah, we, we, we did retail for a while. We kind of, people came into our stores and called them the Whole Foods of Cannabis. And at the time I was dating an herbalist, acupuncturist. Um, I've always really believed in plant-based medicine. I've had astounding next day results from acupuncture. Um, and, you know, that's the other side of the coin of traditional Chinese medicine, right? There's acupuncture and then her the herbs. Mm -hmm. And so we all kind of had the same thought that, you know, we should have licensed acupuncturists presiding over the cannabis patients, uh, basically use licensed acupuncturists as our bud tenders. So we started doing that with the new stores in 2007 and uh, it was kind of revolutionary. The store that we bought in Santa Monica at the time was called the Herb King. It was a, uh, an herb dispensary for traditional Chinese medicine. And it was a lot of people, the first time they graduated, um, you know, from traditional oriental medicine school, it was the place where everyone would get their first job and get their feet wet and try and build up their clientele and do compounding of herbs and, you know, prescribe herbs for people. And ironically, the owner of it was subsidizing the shop and keeping it going. Maybe I should say supposedly or allegedly, because I'm probably can't guarantee that this was, I never heard this firsthand, but mm. it was understood that um, he was sort of, the shop wasn't making it on its own and he had affiliations in Mendocino and was keeping the shop that he believed in open with, you know, with money derived from cannabis. Mm -hmm. And essentially when we purchased it from him, um, we took the jar of cannabis and added it to the pharmacopoeia. We put it on the shelf right up there with all the other jars of of medicinal herbs. And it was essentially something I don't think he had the courage to do. Mm -hmm. And we were sort of lambasted for it at first, like a lot of the traditional Chinese medicine community in the West side thought what we were doing was terrible and that we were kind of putting a stain on, you know, plant-based medicine by trying to incorporate cannabis into it. But, you know, we believed in it. We were very principled, principled about it. Um, you know, making money was not the primary objective. It was an objective, most definitely, but it was not the primary objective. Um, 
And so that was what we did. But long story short, we got we got shut down within a, a few months. So was the move to uh, VCC, to found VCC, was that an effort to uh, vertically integrate or were you just kind of just tired of getting shut down? I was not cut out for retail, okay. right? Like my background's filmmaking, photography. I was an actor as a young dude and as a kid. And, um, you know, I think my soul's more in like communications and brand building. I was more excited by like creating uh, the, the retail environment than running retail day to day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so kind of painting a picture of what a, a reputable, you know, store looked like was more interesting to me than, than keeping it going. Like, you know, one of the things we were really adamant about was we said, we want a mom to feel comfortable pushing a baby in a baby stroller through our store. Mm -hmm. And that was actually one of the benefits of the pre-regulatory era was you could test out models like that. Right. And we had a children's medicine chest section. I can't take credit for all this because I had partners, you know, but mm -hmm. we had a children's medicine chest section and we had moms come in buying medicine for their little kids and they'd go up to one register and buy something and say, I love this store. Yeah. And, you know, you'd have a dude buying his weed at another register going, I love this store. <laughs> so it was, it was just, it was neat to, uh, you know, it was neat to create that. And that was mm -hmm. fun. And you know, when the, when the thrill wore off from that, and also I had partners in that. So starting Venice cookie company, starting a cannabis brand and using our stores as a place to try out products and try out brands was something that kind of was my baby. And, um, and yeah, it was, you know, uniquely positioned that we had a built-in consumer base coming through our stores that we could test out what worked and what did not As you were trying out new products and brands, what was it that were some of your early successes and what were some of your more memorable failures? The most memorable failure, and I like to share this with people because it, it puts things into context for kind of our current product line and, and where things are going. But, um, you know, when we started, there wasn't even testing available for cannabis products yet. So we couldn't guarantee within a 10% uh, variance what the potency of the product were. We had ways of knowing the range, but I'm sure we were falling outside of 10%. We were probably always within 20, 20%, you know, mm -hmm. 25%, yeah. but you know, we were probably always within 20%. And for the super experienced consumer back then, that was a good enough tolerance, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but one of our biggest failures, you know, early on, you could put cannabis in anything and it would work, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, cannabis in, we used to joke that, you know, we used to joke that certain form factors would work just because they're ironic and silly and they did. But, um, we tried making most of our products had around 60 to 180 milligrams of THC in them. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what, let's try making a product a 10th of that potency. Let's try making a product with six milligrams of THC in it. Mm -hmm. And in 2010, a six milligram THC product, no one wanted it. Yeah. It was laughed off the shelf and it, and it, it was, a, it was probably our biggest failure. Okay. Uh, what were some of the products? I mean, so were the products that were successes, the one that you uh, doubled the potency? Um, 
the early most successful product where we really, really hit pay dirt was the 420 bar. Okay. Which ironically, we came to the name because I never wanted to kind of overtly signal stoner culture mm-hmm. is we were using, um, when we did the math, we would use uh, 0.12 grams of cannabis as a function of an amount of cannabis, which if I remember correctly, um, by using, you know, 0.12 grams of dry material and extracting it, it had approximately 15 milligrams of THC in it. Okay. Um, maybe it was, no, it was 12. It was 12 milligrams of THC. No, one point. Anyways, something around there. And um, we made a, a 10X product. I'm getting all the math wrong, but the 420 bar, when we realized we wanted to make it a, like 15 times stronger than a normal product, it ironically was comprised of 4.2 grams of cannabis. So I was okay. like, all right, I guess we got to call it the 420 bar. Right, right. But that thing, you know, that was kind of the same model that's winning today in California cannabis was bang for your buck. Mm-hmm. You know, most potent product you can get at the most affordable price. And that was what really was was winning back then. The difference was that had 180 milligrams and today we're limited to 100. Going from retail and then jumping into manufacturing, when you decided that you wanted to start making, what did you start with edibles and uh and beverages or did the beverages come later? We did a, we did a dry tea in 2010. Dennis Hopper's nurse came into the store and said, Dan, Dennis is dying of cancer. Does, could someone make him a hot tea? He'd really like a hot tea. So I figured that out um, and started delivering it to him. It was a, you know, dry tea. So that was the first beverage, subtle tea mm. um, in 2010. And then we did CQ. It used to be called Cannabis Quencher. It now goes by CQ in 2012 was when we launched that. What was it like jumping into product manufacturing? All of a sudden, you know, I mean, did you have any, did you have any experience with that uh, sort of process? My cousin um, was a pastry chef. Okay. And um, I think she had just gotten pregnant with, with uh, her, her kid. And this gave her an opportunity where I said, Hey, I'll, I'll pay you to work from home. And, you know, manufacture our first three products. First three products were cookies, right? We started as Venice Cookie Company. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so she, you know, she had reservations. Her father had gotten in trouble for cannabis in Northern California earlier in life, and it didn't go well. Mm-hmm. And I had to really kind of explain to her, like, our mission and what this is about and where I felt the trajectory of things were going and that we were definitely helping people and that, um outside of the product called 420 bar, we were really trying to kind of position ourselves as a wellness brand. Even if our products were as elementary as a baked good, Mm -hmm. you know, it was really that these are wellness products. This is not about getting high per se. This is about, you know, giving people access to um, plant medicine that they need and, you know, health freedom. Well, and that's something that I've heard from people on the retail side is that you get to see that the impact firsthand. You get to see the people that you're helping, you know, day to day. Yeah. That's, you know, that's how I really came at this originally is I, you know, I, I met Michael at the pharmacy as a cannabis vendor. Mm -hmm. And then I really quickly said to him, Hey, I want to make a documentary about what you're doing. 
has anyone ever offered to make a documentary? And he said, yes, John Sayles, Oscar winner, offered to make a documentary. I told him no. I said, mm -hmm. let me do it. And he mm -hmm. said, okay, let's do it. And I think it was like back to that trust and that surf level thing that we connected on. Um, and I think going to Burning Man together for the first time after we knew each other for four or five months helped too. Okay. But um, I started going in the shop and firsthand interviewing people. I started going down to city hall and sitting in on meetings. I started finding myself like in the middle of arguments in the hallway of city hall of people on both sides of the issue and panning back and forth and like got this incredible footage. And it was an incredibly powerful education on the very, very ground level, what was going on, what medical cannabis was and what it was becoming and going to become and deeper into the future in, you know, the city of Los Angeles and the biggest market in the world, California. And that was a huge education. And that was another thing that, you know, aside from having like the high risk tolerance, it was always mission driven, mm -hmm. you know, and it still is. And that's why we're so lucky in this industry is, you know, hopefully if your head's in this for the right reason, your heart's in it for the right reason, you, your staff, everyone you're surrounding yourself with, there's an unspoken mission driven thing that guides us and drives us right out the gate, you know? Mm -hmm. Did, uh, did you finish the documentary? No, I passed okay. off. I passed it off to a friend and, um, the other business partners involved in, uh, the dispensary sort of imploded. It was, it was tough to have partners. Mm. And, um, I was, I, I was not the one calling the shots at the store. So I kind of sidestepped some of the, the, of the issues, but no documentary documentary never got footage. I've got finished. Michael asked to take possession of the footage. I gave him the footage. It's got locked up in storage somewhere and he's now passed away. Um, I'd like to ask, so I understand that you were risk averse and that's what brought you into cannabis. Did you have a personal connection to the plants uh, that was the initial motivation? I was raised with a father who just had a bong on the dresser. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, it was no different than just a flower vase on the dresser. It wasn't something that got brought up. It wasn't something that was hidden or, you know, shrouded in shame or mystery or anything. It was just, it was as simple as like, visiting the guy who he got his cannabis from was as normal to me as, you know, getting milk delivered by the milkman a million years ago. Mm -hmm. And that struck with me. And I like the fact that my dad never put anything on it. He didn't mm -hmm. say this was, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. He didn't say this was one of the worst evils in the world. And I think that was, that always just sort of guided me was it was, it was normalized ever since I can remember. Mm -hmm. The implosion that you're talking about at the pharmacy, was it over money? What happened? Uh, I, I, I don't even know if I should get into it or want to, or like, oh, okay. you know, I don't know if, uh, you know, I don't want to say anything slanderous or anything, but you know, it, it's stressful enough to run a store that's, you know, breaking that sort of new ground. Mm -hmm. um, cash businesses combined with a lot of employees. One thing I've learned about cash businesses is for 
whatever reason, when you have a staff that is like elbow deep in counting cash and managing piles of cash Mm -hmm. combined with the, you know, the threat, people tend to feel more responsible for the creation of that cash. Whereas Mm -hmm. if it's just numbers on a spreadsheet, it's, it's just not, you know, it's, it's not processed in the same way mentally. So yeah, it's just, it was, it was risky. Um, You know, people had different agendas and different, you know, intentions and, you know, that's probably all I should say. It was a really great, um, it was like the first, it was the first time I was ever involved in the politics of running a business. It was the first time I was ever involved in running an actual business other than, you know, being my own businessman as a, as an artist and a photographer and music video director and stuff like that. Um, man, you just keep dropping different careers. We got to get to that and we'll get to that in a bit. Um, so, well, the reason I wanted to ask is because some of the people that I've talked to that are, have been in the industry a long time, they're very careful, very selective about the partners they choose going forward because they kind of want to surround themselves with good people, but also, you know, kind of keep that drama to the side. Very important. I mean, I didn't come at business with, you know, um, with any sort of formal background. And I couldn't say I came at business with much of, you know, uh, role models within my family, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, my mom's incredible. She runs her own business. So I'm sure the entrepreneurial spirit is, you know, inside me from her. Um, and my brother runs his own business too, but you know, you know, just basic things. I didn't have, you know, like the whole rich dad, poor bet, poor dad background. I didn't have anyone to explain to me how a mortgage work or what a mortgage was or how you started up an entity. The day that we were raided, wow, this just brought it back to me. The day the pharmacy was raided in 2006, I was at the Ronald Reagan building downtown filing the paperwork for the entity of the new store we were opening. And that was the first time I'd ever filed corporate paperwork before to yeah. start an entity. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, obviously you always want to have good partners and, and, and that's helpful. And I think the way we all came together, Michael picked a couple different people that he saw different things in to help him open these new stores. I don't think he'd ever thought through, you know, how we would work as a team and God bless Michael. I don't think he was really cut out for running a team. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. He was more of kind of like a crazy visionary who had a vision Mm-hmm. But I think the actual assembling the pieces of it was more frustrating for him than anything. Well, I mean, we see that all the time when uh, people are great entrepreneurs, great idea guys or uh, women. And but when it, it succeeds and all of a sudden you're, you know, trying to steer the ship, it's like, I'm not really into this or good at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason they say some people are entrepreneurial and some people are, you know, CEOs, right? Right. Um, Some people are better off staying in that entrepreneurial role. So how did, what was the evolution from Venice Cookie Company to VCC Brands? We just started coming out with new brands. We had Venice Cookie Company. We had One Tincture. We had Subtle Tea. We had the 420 Bar. And then we had Cannabis Quencher. And it was like, well, we have all these different brands now. Should we be VCC brands? Cause I would wear a lanyard to a 
you know, one of these business expos and people would go, oh, so you make cookies, huh? And I was like, oh, we do so much more than cookies. We do all these different brands. So I think by the time we went to a show in Chicago in 2015, you know, we were, our booth branded us as VCC brands. We had all these different brands laid out. The New York Times did this big photo essay on all the products we made. Mm. Um, and so that was the evolution was just letting people know we did more than cookies, but to this day, it's like, we've kind of toggled back. And now I kind of, uh, wear it as a badge of honor that we're Venice cookie company, really kind of like the old school people in the California industry know what Venice cookie company is and was, and, and all of that. Kind of tapping into the nostalgia. Yeah. So we've kind of gone full circle, you know, VCC brands, I think is like yum brands, right? Yum is the parent company of Taco Bell, uh, Pizza Hut, whatever. No consumer facing person knows what yum brands is not a consumer facing brand. It's kind of the industry moniker. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of my analogy for what VCC is. How did you scale production? I mean, or were you still making all these products? Was your sister-in-law making these products in the kitchen? Yeah, we, you know, we moved into um, one, you know, one kitchen. Um, it was actually the same landlord that that was renting to us for our store on Venice. Mm. She started up a home food delivery business and gave us some off hours in her kitchen to to work. We learned very, very quickly. You want to work at night when health department isn't going to come do an inspection. Okay. Right. Right. And then when we got and bought our own kitchen, we would start at 4 p.m. The swing shift would start at 4. We would get in the kitchen, prep everything, get all the equipment warmed up. And then at 5 o'clock, break out the secret sauce and start infusing things. But uh, the general idea was, you know, never be working when the health department was working. <laughs> even though we were following all their rules and we even called them and said, Hey, we're a cannabis business using a, a certified kitchen. Will you guys come visit us? Mm-hmm. They said, well, we will, but we'll bring the police and arrest you. So oh, I was geez. like, okay, I'm not going to tell you who or where we are. Right. You know? So even when you try to do the right thing, they're very adamant about, Hey, our protocol is to call the police. Oh my goodness. Um, what uh, did you bring in people with, food manufacturing expertise, uh, you know, did you invest in new, any kind of automation equipment or anything like that? Or was it uh, kind of the basics for baking? There was some light automation. And I think even today, you know, the, the scale of the cannabis industry, the scale of, you know, cannabis industry automation is still not on the level of Jolly Rancher. I mean, I remember in 2000, 14, I think I called, you know, Union Equipment, John, I can't even think of his name back in New York, you know, but I would call these places and say, hey, do you have a hard candy machine? And, you know, how much product does it produce? And they were like, oh, okay, we have this machine, it produces 600 pounds of hard candy per hour. And I was like, well, okay, we'll, we'll flick that thing on for 30 minutes a month. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the scale of automation for the cannabis industry is not the same scale as automation for, you know, Ledestri foods or PepsiCo or something like that. But, you know, there's companies like everyone's using these truffly gummy depositors Mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that. So that, you know, little like micro scale automation equipment, as you know, is, is around. But to Mm -hmm. this day, I, you know, I always thought I would learn a lot about manufacturing. We third party 
do our, we, we use third-party manufacturers now, but okay. when I used to tour some big co-packers through our facility, I thought I was going to learn a lot from them. And I learned very quickly. They were more interested in how I was doing it. Oh, okay. So I was like, oh, okay. That's interesting. You know? Um, so where are, you said you go through third parties. Do you have any sort of uh, manufacturing operation or facility? We sold our facility in Northern California and, um, no, we run no, we run no manufacturing facilities. Okay. Um, have any of the issues that have hit manufacturing, like bottlenecks, supply chain issues, have you felt the impacts of any of that on your products? Yeah, we, we've had, you know, co-packers struggle to get, uh, get the product right. It's a new industry. I don't want to go into that too much, but yeah, you know, the, the, Co-packing is challenging in this very nascent stage of the industry. And a lot of people have given it a shot and, and a lot of people have, have given it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a, in, in a lot of ways, I wish we were still managing our own manufacturing, but as things get better and better and we find, you know, more and more capable partners and everyone becomes more capable, things are looking up. Did I answer your question? Uh, yes. Yeah, it was, uh, I'm I'm also talking uh, not just about some of the issues that you've had with them making your product, but like now there's been material shortages. So I didn't know like if there are material shortages in plastics that have hit your bottling operations, anything like that. Yeah. During the pandemic, we were told that the hand sanitizer cartel had purchased up millions and millions of, of PET bottles. Mm-hmm. And so um, we had to shift away from PET to HDPE for a while. And we're still kind of going through the last of our HDPE stock right now. Um, you know, I think there's still potentially some resin shortages, but yeah, we basically had to back, uh, you know, stock up uh, on on more materials than we needed. So that that created a little bit of an issue. Um, but for the most part, we've been lucky. We don't use aluminum um, aluminum cans yet. Okay. So we've had a few problems, but not much. Uh. I read that you like to make products that are wellness oriented, tasty and safe. How have your products evolved through the years, you know, maintaining like uh, staying in line with that motto, but also, you know, to create a better product. How have they evolved to create a better product? I think you really just kind of have to evolve with consumer preferences, right? I mean, chocolate used to be the dominant, dominant form factor, the dominant thing in in California. And now chocolate's practically an afterthought. You know, so much of the edible market is gummy, right? It's damn near 80% of all edibles are, you know, purchased or gummy. Mm-hmm. Um, in California. And that's pretty universal with other states. We saw that in, in, in uh, Colorado first. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, going from a company with, you know, chocolate tempering and machines and whatnot, and then getting into, you know, the gummy world, you're just going to be um, a- adapting to consumer demand. How have things evolved? I mean, definitely over the year, our beverage capabilities have gotten better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we started out making the, the activating the drinks in a really simple way. And then over time we learned how to, um, make a proper emulsion. And then even once we knew how to make a proper emulsion, we realized that uh, a lot of co-packers weren't interested in making it themselves. They were kind of, you know, expectant of having that be another outsourced ingredient. Mm-hmm. So we have the capabilities of doing our own emulsion. 
Um, but we use uh, Harold and the boys over at Vertosa, Harold Hahn Vertosa. Um, and I have kind of a good friendship with him since before he started the company. And Harold is such an incredible dude. You can just tell that he's never going to stop improving his product. And so mm-hmm. it, it just came to a point where it really made sense for us to outsource that and just leverage his passion and his skill set and his, you know, PhD in mm-hmm. uh, emulsion technology. So, yeah. With the Cannabis Quencher product line, are you as hot on beverages as an emerging product category as some of the others in the industry? I'm all in on beverage. Um, You know, I love that there's still some people who don't fully believe the beverage category is going to be the next big thing. And I think there's good reasons to have those reservations. I'm incredibly grateful for what CAN has done. You know, CAN is throwing more money at education and marketing than anybody else in the cannabis industry, period. I think it's safe to say. And they've sort of single-handedly demonstrated proof of concept for beverage, for the beverage category. I don't know too many people who question whether the beverage category is going to grow or, you know, will continue to be more and more viable. And I think you've got to give it up to them for um, all the hard work and all the hard money they've, they've, they've thrown down to do that. Regarding the VCC product portfolio, how does it break down in terms of sales? Um, what are you selling the most of? What are you selling the least of? Right now, we're focused purely on beverage in California. Okay. And we're licensing the baked goods to Arizona. We have um, a, a licensing deal in Massachusetts for a low-dose sparkling beverage. So again, it's sort of like, you know, um, necessity is the mother of invention. We're, we're entering the low-dose space in Massachusetts where the most potent drink you can make is five milligrams. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited about that. Um, we had to first make a sparkling drink for the state of Washington in 2013, 2014, because carbonation was mandated in their, in their beverages up oh, there. Um, so, you know, every state's got a different way of doing it and figuring it out. And, you know, you've got to be, you know, anyone who's going to survive in cannabis, you have to be able to react quickly and, and, and not be set in your ways. Talking about Washington, when did you, decide to try and enter that market? I think um, my business partner moved up there in 2012 to get things going. And I think the the idea was, hey, let's establish our brand prior to um, the regulatory market. Um, You know, let's plant our flag in the ground early so we kind of have some credibility before all the carpetbaggers come in. When once there's no more risk, and um, so that was how we played it up there. But you know, I, I uh, owed it all to my partner. He was the one who really took the sacrifice to to relocate and get that going. And that was Evergreen Herbal. Yeah. Okay. Um, I also read that you helped create some of the regulations that the Washington State Liquor and Cannabis Board uh, used. How did that pr- process work out? I, I might have more helped create certain ways to get around the regulations up there <laughs> okay. by, by just coming at things in a certain way. Um, you know, we, we, we built one of the first facilities. We had people, we, we invited the fire department in to train in our extraction lab mm-hmm. up in King County. Um, 
you know, we had meetings with them. We told them, you know, our experiences and how we, we did things down in California. And I think that education kind of helped them shape some things. But some of the tricks that I came up with, I'd rather leave to myself and not give them away. They're not, Understood. you know, I'm sure other people are employing them as well. And they are, mm-hmm. but whatever, I'll keep them myself. I mean, you got to keep some of the tricks up your sleeve, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, what was it like having the first licensed cannabis hydrocarbon extraction facility up there? Um, fun yeah. and interesting. It was an interesting moment to watch, you know, gosh, you know, a, a guy extracting cannabis in California was making, you know, easily more than six figures a year, way over that, you know, because of the risk involved up there as soon as, it was, uh, you know, legal. It became a $60,000 a year job. Mm. I, I don't even know, you know, what people are paying now because I'm all third party. But, you know, it was interesting to walk into our facility one day and see everybody on a break, just like it was a regular old business. Mm-hmm. Whereas down in California, it was still very, you know, surreptitious because we had to, we had to watch, watch out and we were still in survival mode by keeping things under wraps. Mm-hmm. And then going up to Washington, it was like, wow, when did the cannabis industry become so lame? Because, <laughs> you know, it was just like normal working stiffs now. There wasn't yeah. that, that bond due to the mission, you know. Mm-hmm. Are you still president of the California Cannabis Manufacturers Association? Yeah, we, I, I founded that with Christy, the, the former COO of Kiva, Christy Palmer. Um, she's, she's stepped away. I mean, she's still very, very involved in Kiva, but I think they've hired a COO cause she's a, a new mom. She's got two kids now. Super happy for her. I have two kids too. And, um, yeah, we founded that in 2015 after, um, after we got raided down here, we got raided by a hundred police officers, um, at 7 30 AM on a Thursday morning, about 20 police officers went to five different locations of our, you know, business mm-hmm. and just simultaneously raided us and, and took everything just because they could very similar to what happened in 2006. Did you get it back? Took three years, but yeah, we fought, I fought and got everything back. Basically, you know, it was like a, a I think it was like a 14 hour, hundred person multi-jurisdictional raid. And at the end of the day, the cops looked at each other and said, well, do we arrest anyone? And the answer was, nah, they didn't even bother arresting anyone, you know? And the big, big problem back then was prop 215 was uh, allowed for an affirmative defense, right? A lot of people know this, but maybe some of your listeners don't know it. Prop 215 allowed for an affirmative defense, which meant if someone pressed charges against you, they could take you to court, that law enforcement agency or whoever could take you to court and you could defend yourself with an affirmative defense. But who the hell wants to go to court to, to defend what they're doing is law abiding, right? That's equivalent of a bar getting shut down because someone says, I saw a rat in that bar and they just come in and shut you down, take all your alcohol, take anything of value in the store, kick everyone out, you know, break windows, board the place up and say, see you in court. If you want to prove to us, you weren't doing anything wrong. Um, So, you know, what prop 64, excuse me, what prop 64 brought to the table were arrest protections, Mm -hmm. right? Up front. 
not just an affirmative defense. So that was the big game changer. Um, and after we got raided and I put the business back together and within 365 days of the, you know, the one year anniversary of the day we were raided, our business was doing double the revenue it was when we were raided. And again, I had to put it together all under the radar again, because I had, I took the cops to court. Mm. I told them, I dare you to tell me what I was doing wrong. And we kind of went in and um, we got a great judge who was just about to retire. He wasn't afraid to call out, you know, some hypocrisy where he saw it. And we had a really, really great, um, you know, things fell into place as soon as we just kind of shed some sunlight on why the hell they chose us. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I'm rambling, but anyways, I started CCMA after all that went down and it seemed like, you know, I've kind of been through the fire and maybe some people should hear about our story, you know, and how can we use our story to avoid letting it happen to others in the industry? I was reading up about the CCMA and it said, there was a quote on the website that said, cannabis manufacturers and distributors provide more jobs per square foot than any other form of license holder in the industry. And I just wanted to see if you could comment to that as to how it is a real job creator in the industry. Wow, that's that feels like a while ago that we we put together the website. We're actually just about to redo it because I think it's a little dated now. Okay, but um, yeah, I think you know we did the comparison of you know square footage for a cultivator or the square footage for a distributor license type. And, you know, manufacturers have more, more warm bodies packed into their facilities than the other license types. So mm-hmm. it seemed like a good thing to include. What is your take on the state of the cannabis industry in California? You know, there's a lot of talk of the regulated market being on the verge of collapse. Is that what you're experiencing? Yeah. Um, I think what's going to collapse is, you know, the diversity and um, the kind of the exciting texture of all of the young entrepreneurial self-funded or, you know, small funded, you know, brands, you know, someone else wrote, it's not that the industry is going to collapse. It's that it's going to be gobbled up by a few big, you know, corporate entities that are going to own it all. Mm. And, you know, some people would argue that that's happening by design. You know mm. what I mean? Maybe that's what the state really wants to deal with is a smaller amount of players. Mm-hmm. And, you know, other people um, think it's just kind of an unintended consequence of too much regulation. Mm-hmm. What are your expectations for federal legalization? I have no expectations for federal legalization. Like I, my joke is ever since, you know, in 2006, I thought it would happen within five or six years. And so I've been thinking federal legalization was four or five or six years away for 15, 16, 17 years now. Um, and, you know, like Ben, uh, CEO of GEI, GTI says, he's like, we're kind of built to, 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 to thrive regardless of the timeline for federal legalization. I think if you're going to try and make it in this, um, it can't be predicated around that event. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sure. You can, you can have, you know, some of your convertible notes, turn to equity at that time if you're a Canadian entity and you're investing in a, an American brand or something. But, um, you know, federal legalization is all just perhaps icing on the cake. Perhaps it's another death knell. Mm. Um, you've been a filmmaker, an actor, you've directed music videos. 
any any uh passion gonna pull you in a different direction or are you in cannabis to stay ah who knows who knows i like to collaborate with people um i think i don't give myself enough credit sometimes for what i know Mm -hmm. um i think that's why i like to collaborate with people um i'm sure i could be i'm sure i could sell all my brands and be you know very happy moving on to something completely different or i could be very happy you know, bringing my skill set um, to another cannabis brand, either starting my own or, or helping someone else with theirs. It's like, who knows? You know, um, I always just, you know, I hope I continue to surprise myself with where I end up. And, you know, that's an old acting quote from Stanislavski, I think, was, or maybe I forgot who it was, but it was shock yourself. You know what I mean? Do things where you're just surprised that you're doing them. No, I completely agree. It's uh, really easy to get complacent and bored out there. Um, yeah, that was part of the reason we started CCMA, right? It was like, I've always been very mission driven, mm-hmm. but I used to take meetings with, you know, elected officials and I would be very honest with them. I'd say, this is incredible. You know, it's like, I got a noon lunch with you and I have a drug deal at two. <laughs> you know what I mean? But we were yeah. at that place where things, the trajectory, things were changing. And so it was, it was fun and surprising to find myself in that position, you know, helping work on policy in California and other places. With the acting and filmmaking, directing music videos, anything that uh, we would know? Um, the first music video I directed was for Incubus, Take Me no. to Your Leader. Yeah, it was right oh after. My goodness. It was that- right when they got their record deal with Immortal Records. They were label mates with Korn. Immortal yeah. was owned by Sony. And they were like some surfers that I grew up surfing with in Malibu and whatnot. And we bumped into each other kind of happenstance. I was photographing some pictures of a model and the guitarist was at the model's house, was good friends with her roommate. He looked at the photos and he was like, oh, we need some photos. I didn't know. I never heard them play, but I knew them. Mm. I shot the photos. Then I went to the show and I was like, oh, dude, this band's going to be huge. And I just said, I want to make a music video for you guys. That's uh, I, oh, go ahead. And yeah, and I'd never made a music video before, and I said I want to make a music video for you guys. And then you know I pitched them on a concept, and it worked, and it was clever, and brought the footage to their label, and um, they set me up with an editor, and I edited it in a couple of days. Got them on MTV before they were planning on trying to even get on MTV, and then the uh, the the label hired me to make a second video while I was an English major at UCLA. And I made a video for um, the song, a certain shade of green off okay. of their album science. Man, that's one of, uh, that's one of my wife's favorite bands. That's one of her fav- favorite albums. Yeah. Album. No, yeah, good, um, good guys. Good, good, good guys. I wish I stayed in a little more touch with them. I, my attic is filled with all these photos I did of them. And I'm like, I got to sell those to them, you know, to their label or whatever, for some big retrospective. It was like, you know, back when they were teenagers, mm-hmm. I have some really cool, you know, early photos of them. Um, and you say you're a family man, you got two kids. How old are your kids? I got a one-year-old and a four-year-old. Oh, same path, man. I'm yeah. right there. One and a four-year-old. Yeah. So yeah, we discussed crazy that. yeah, no, it's, um, that's incredible. Like, uh, yeah, I know that we had discussed it offline, but it is just, like I said before, I understand your exhaustion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, before we get out of here, 
Do you, is there anything else that we might have left out or anything in particular that, you know, you want to make sure the cannabis equipment news audience knows about VCC? Nope. We didn't leave anything out. We talked about it all. Very um, good. We're, 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 we just kind of refreshed our branding. We're taking the CQ beverages. They're no longer cannabis quencher. I think that name from 2012 is a little misleading because they're not thirst quenching sports drinks. Mm. Um, so uh, they're called CQ now. Um, and so we're, we're actually now doing targeted formulas of indica, sativa, and hybrid. We're um, doing some low-calorie agua frescas, um, but not using stevia anymore. We're focusing more on the deliciousness, making that, you know, sub-primary. Everything is subservient to flavor. I think that's how things have evolved a little bit. We're coming out with a um, Arnold Palmer. So we're doing our first lemonade iced tea mix. It's a mango Arnold Palmer. It's delicious mango lemonade with black tea. And um, we're expanding the shots from three, three skews to five. Mm. And so um, Indica Sativa Hybrid, a sleep version with CBN and a, um, a CBD one-to-one ratio. So yeah, just the product looks a lot prettier now. There's fruit on the packaging. It highlights the deliciousness, highlights the real fruit. Um, and, and that's kind of the brand refresh that we're undergoing with CQ. And then, yeah, later on in the year, we'll be launching a low-dose sparkling beverage, which I'm really excited about. Of the products that you make, what's your favorite? Um, the drinks. The drinks. I'm a big iced tea drinker. We have Subtlety, which is now uh, a hemp beverage that's sold at Air One, which is the fancy, you know, upscale, uh, you know, neighborhood market here in, in L.A. I think they have like seven stores. One of my friends said Air One makes Whole Foods look like the Salvation Army. Oh, it's, goodness. You know, we have the most expensive ready to drink bottled tea in the store. Mm. Um, it's stevia sweetened, um, and, you know, we're looking at how, how to retool it to make it more appropriate for the cannabis space again. Very good. Well, Kenny, thank you very much for taking the time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, man. Well, thanks again, Kenny. I really do appreciate your time and I'm really inspired by all the work that VCC is doing as well as the CCMA. All right, for Kenny Morrison, I'm David Manti. This is the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. And before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can email me at david at, nope, yep, david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. See, I lost it there for a second. It was because I was so blown away by the conversation. All right, you can also, if you're looking for any additional information, you can reach us at our website, CannabisEquipmentNews.com. For Kenny, I'm David Manti. This is the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast.